0: Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you all. So glad that uh, we are together in this new year. Hope uh, you have had a happy new year thus far, and uh, it is good to worship the Lord together um, in a new year. Well, uh, as you can see, uh, sadly, uh, Christmas is over. Um, we The decorations are down. It's ended. But... And uh, what follows Christmas in the, the church calendar, you may not be as familiar with the church calendar, is Epiphany Sunday. That's what this is. And an Epiphany Sunday is the is time, uh, and, and the season of Epiphany, is the time for remembering what followed Christ's coming. That the amazing uh, appearing of Christ was that he might be a savior for all peoples. And so that is the season we are remembering Christ as the savior for all peoples. And so what better time to jump back into the gospel of Luke uh, as we have walked through and seen Jesus and his ministry. Um, And so we're excited to do that this morning. We're gonna jump back in. Uh, We'll be in Luke, as we read a minute ago, we'll be in Luke uh, chapter 20 and heading into chapter 21. If you'd like to follow along in the scriptures. Well, there's a, a common storytelling trope Uh, that goes like this. It's the evil ruler who somehow assumes or gets into the place of a benevolent king, Uh, whether it's the evil queen in Snow White or the white witch in Narnia or the sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood. And with the true king away in these stories, after a while, uh, the evil ruler begins making changes, harming the people now, maybe even under the guise of caring for them. If you think of the Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood, uh, one of the common tellings of that story is that that the Sheriff is placed in charge by Prince John while King Richard is off at war, and where the King was beloved and kind to the people, gracious with his ruling. Uh, The Sheriff is short-fused. He's power-hungry. He portrays himself as a lawman, demanding respect for the law, but ultimately he cares about establishing his own power, and lining his own pockets. And of course, when King Richard returns, well, the story goes it, it didn't go so well for the sheriff. And throughout the book of Luke, the scribes and the Pharisees have been the lawmen. Uh, they were to be they were supposed to be Israel's under shepherds, caring for God's people as his representatives. But again and again, we've seen Jesus expose them as frauds. And now here in today's passage, we actually see the final a condemnation of Jesus against these leaders. To their shame, Jesus will compare them, as we just read, these wicked rulers, he compares them to a powerless widow. And the comparison won't be very pretty for the lawmen. And so as we look today at the scribes and as we look at the widow, I want us to see three things. Now, number one, we'll see a bad example of worship. Number two, we see a good example. And then lastly, uh, we're going to see what can we learn from them. What can we learn? Well, before we dive into the text, uh, I want us to just go to the Lord in prayer. So would you join me? Just right where you are, would you ask the Lord to calm your heart? Maybe maybe you're just restless today. Maybe you're anxious about something. Maybe something in the new year is just already weighing you down. Um, Would you just ask the Lord to remove distraction so that you might hear and believe the truth of his word. And I pray for, uh, your friends or your family that are here with you this morning or even other church members that you don't even know, pray that we as, as a gathered people would believe God's word, would, would trust it, would see him uh, as all we need. So would you pray for, for others this morning as we hear? And lastly, we we pray for me. And I pray that the Lord would speak in a way that is helpful to us, in a way that points us not to not to my words, but to Christ. Lord, would you help us now? Would you help us as we come to your word and that we would see and believe what is true about our good God and savior, Jesus. Lord, we, we lift up our friends who are preparing to, to launch this new work in Magnolia Harbor Church. Lord, we, we pray that you would do a supernatural work as they go. Lord, would neighbors and friends and those who, even this very morning, being in a, in a church family is the farthest thing from their mind, but Lord, through the work that you'll do, Lord, we ask that you would, would, would in the weeks and months to come, that these would be uh, those who've placed their trust in you. Lord, would you knit this, uh, this new plant together uh, for your glory, for their joy in you. Lord, we also ask for, uh, for Harvest Fellowship in spring, Lord, as they uh, begin meeting together this morning. Lord, would you, uh, would you minister through them? Would the gospel go forward in spring? Um, and would many know you uh, as these two fellowships gather together and, and become one body together? Lord, would you knit them and unite them as one? Lord, today, we need you. Meet with us. By your Spirit, would you would you knock off the scales uh, from our eyes, or the hard heart of unbelief? And Lord, would you uh, would you give us by your Spirit ears to hear and hearts that would believe? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, outside of the outside of Advent, uh, where we have spent just a little bit of time in Luke, uh, it's been it's been a minute since we've been in the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, we've taken some breaks here and there, other little series as we've walked through this. Um, but it, 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 would you believe it? It's actually been over two years since we started in this book together, and now we're in the home stretch. We're in the home stretch. It, it's been a journey. It's been fun, but today we're going to move from chapter 20 to chapter 21. Uh, but since it's been a while, I, I, I want to do a quick refresh just just to remind us kind of where we've left off in Luke's gospel. I, I don't know if you do this, but anytime my family is about to watch a sequel. Like, we have to, like, it, it, it's like, I didn't see the last one. It was a long time ago when I saw the last one. So what do we do? We have to find a YouTube video with like a three or four minute recap of the previous movie so we can remember what in the world we watched last time. Um, and so that's, we're going to kind of do a quick recap of where we've been. If you remember, uh, we, the first three chapters of Luke, uh, we're introduced to Jesus. This is pretty familiar because we've been here uh, for the, the Advent season. Uh, we, we looked in, in, during Advent at Jesus' humble entrance. It wasn't the grand welcome that a king should have received, but still there were angels singing. There were shepherds and old priests rejoicing. And then in chapter three, probably the most important celebration of all, when the father himself erupts with joy and says at Jesus's baptism, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. And then in Luke chapter four, Jesus's ministry begins. And though he speaks with authority, we, we remember his hometown has none of it. They reject his message, which leads him out into the humble ministry that he will then have in Capernaum and throughout the region of Galilee, healing the sick, preaching in their synagogues. At times he, he keeps his identity close to the vest, telling people to, urge, urging them to tell no one. Uh, yet at other times, he speaks pretty plainly about who he is. He's the Messiah, the son of David. And then at the end of chapter nine, he begins to turn his focus to his final destination of Jerusalem. And we move into chapters 10 to 18 and and really throughout the book, but particularly throughout this section, this traveling band of disciples keeps growing around him, sometimes uncomfortably so. Like there's times where it sounds like, man, that would be a bad place to be if you were claustrophobic. There's people crowding in. But as his reputation spreads... The crowds are no longer just filled with disciples and those who want to experience the ministry of Jesus. No, opponents are beginning to infiltrate the crowd. Religious leaders are, are angered by his claims. Pharisees and scribes question and accuse him. And it's throughout this middle section of the book that I think we really see uh, three of the important themes uh, in Luke's gospel and, and in Christ's ministry playing out. And those themes are, are these, number, number one, Jesus offers the hope of the kingdom to the lowly, to the outcast, to sinners. The good, the good news of, of, of the kingdom of, of God wasn't for the pious, wasn't for the elite. Jesus said, I, I didn't come for the well, but for the sick. So he came for lepers, for the paralyzed, for the blind. And we see he doesn't just go to the physically sick. He receives greedy tax collectors, He sets demon-possessed people free. And though they felt so unworthy, we even see faith emerge from a prostitute and from a Roman centurion. And he says to them, to those who are the lowly, he says, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In Luke chapter 14. The second theme is this, and the flip side of this, is that Jesus strongly rebukes the Jewish leaders who were who asserting their own dominance. And not, not only did they reject his warnings, they, they hated. They hated that he would welcome sinners. And so he warned them that my kingdom that's coming, it, it's opposed to your pride, your self-righteousness. In fact, that other part of Luke chapter 14, verse 11, is that for these people, those who exalt themselves, you will be humbled. And unless you repent, he tells them often, judgment is coming. You're like a dying tree, he said, and the ax is at the root, ready to chop you down. And this, lastly, this, this, the theme of, uh, that, that we've seen over and over is that the kingdom isn't coming the way people think. It's not coming the way they think. His disciples do believe that he is indeed the Messiah, but all they can imagine is, is triumph, a triumphant king who will lead them again to national prominence. And, 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 and unless we you know, think highly of ourselves, we would have missed it too. Like we would not have understood as well, but he does remind them a lot. Luke chapter nine, he tells his disciples that he's going to be killed and raised again. Uh, just about 20 verses later in chapter nine, he tells them he's gonna be betrayed. In Luke 17, 25, he tells his disciples, I'm gonna suffer. In Luke 18, he, again, he tells them, I'm gonna be killed and raised from the dead. But despite this consistent message that they've heard a lot, they still don't get it. And so as, as we move into the final section of Luke, which begins in chapter 19, Luke says this interesting thing in verse 11 of chapter 19, that, that even then, still, Though the, they, they all thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. They still didn't understand it. And at the end of chapter 19, what do we see? We see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The very same ride that, that Solomon rode in when, he, when King Solomon came in to take David's throne. And as Jesus's followers lined the road, what do they cry? Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what do the religious leaders think about this? They're furious. Their hearts are hard. And, and to them, this is a fraud. He's leading people astray. From, he's leading them from God. And, and this, uh, this, really, this scene kicks off the final week of Jesus's ministry. If you remember, it's Passover week as he comes into town, which means the temple is hopping. Like religious intensity turned up full blast. And Jesus walks in and what does he do when he gets into the temple? He throws out all those who are profiting off the worshipers. They, they've turned Passover into, into big business. And Jesus comes in and he says, no more, which is really, which is really cool. Like, I mean, just when we step back, and, it's really cool that the lamb of God who was about to sacrifice himself, the, the perfect sacrifice once for all was throwing out those who had preferred the sacrificial system. He was there to fulfill it all. And he was tossing them out. It was so, such a cool picture. And after he kicks them out, he, what does he do? He sets up shop right there in the temple courts and he begins to preach. His ministry is no secret anymore. The true king is in the building. The Pharisees are mad. They tell him, rebuke your disciples. Tell them you're not really the king, not really the Messiah, which of course he does not do. And so throughout chapter 20, they, they begin to pepper him with questions trying to trick him, which as we've seen through the whole book, that never goes well for the, the leaders. And once they run out of questions, it seems, Jesus asks them a question. And when they can't answer his question, they stop talking and they start plotting. In fact, the next question that Jesus, the Jewish leaders will ask Jesus uh, will be at his trial in chapter 22. So here we are now at today's text. Jesus is sleeping on the Mount of Olives at night and then waking up and preaching in the temple in the morning. And the crowds keep coming right there into the temple courts. And with everyone listening, he starts talking to his disciples. And this leads us to our first point. Number one, a bad example of worship. Look at verse 45. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. We, we've seen this a lot with Jesus, the way he talks. Uh, but, but don't you love the not so subtle way uh, that he talks about these Jewish leaders? Uh, he, it's not like he just pulls his disciples away to the side and privately says, hey, you need to watch out for those guys. Uh, no, it actually, the, the text actually tells us, we read, we, we, we see that everyone was listening. So while everyone's listening, that's what he says. He was literally just having a conversation with the scribes and now he turns to his disciples and in everyone's hearing, I can just imagine he's almost still looking at the scribes and he's, he's, it's almost as though he's saying and pointing at them, watch out for them, watch out for them. It's another stinging public rebuke, beware. Beware of the scribes. If you remember, these are, these are the experts in God's law, the ones who pride themselves in telling others what God's law requires of them. But Jesus is saying they're just posers. They don't love God. No, look what they love. Look at verse forty-six. Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and a place of honor at banquets. There's several things being said here. Oh, they would wear long robes. These long robes would would have been an that would have been an expensive garment. Uh, it signaled this, this guy's a big deal. And it wasn't just that he, he's, uh, someone with a long robe should be honored or imitated. The, the kind of robes, the long flowing robes, as this, this word suggests, th- these, this suggests they should be revered. This wasn't a type of, the type of robe that you would go out and do work in. No, this is the type of robe that someone wear who didn't do a lot of work. He had people that did work for him. This is someone who is a person of means, and when you saw a religious leader in public, there they, they they were required greetings. And in fact, this became codified later in Jewish practice in the Talmud, something that Jesus had already condemned uh, to the Pharisees. Uh, they, they didn't even have to, though, demand uh, these sort of greetings and these best seats in the synagogues because people just knew. It was part of Jewish life to treat the, their leaders like, like kings. Wherever they went, it was, it was letting them through. It was, hello, teacher. Take, you take the seat here, teacher. Please come and sit down in the front. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest here today. It's, it's the, the, the scribes. It's the Sadducees. They're here today. Even the disciples had bought into the idea that, that having a, being in a better seat made you a better person. And Jesus corrected them. He had strong words against such spiritual pride. There were to be no big shots in God's house. No big shots in, in the temple. And the same is true even now. Look, there, there's nothing wrong uh, with honoring your leaders. Like it's actually a right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. For, first, Paul says this in First Thessalonians 5. He says in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect or, or to honor those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And there we have some people in our body, a team of folks in our body who's really, man, they've done such a cool job at rallying people in our church to, to over the last couple of years to, to care for and to honor our staff and our elders and, and to, to write kind notes and just to be an encouragement to, to each of us. And it really is. It's an encouraging thing to see happen in our body. And it's, it's, it's a real encouraging thing. In, in the midst of difficult ministry, it's an encouraging thing to receive. Um, but woe to leaders who chase honor. Woe to those who use their position to seek privilege for themselves. Woe to those who demand deference, who love admiration. There is no place for spiritual kingery amongst the leaders of Christ's church. Rather, what are church leaders presented as in the New Testament? As shepherds or as loving parents, even as servants, but not kings. So Jesus says, look out. Look out, these these that think they're kings Because see, look where it leads in verse 47. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. What are they willing to do? They're willing to trample the most needy people among them. Not ministering the love of God to the widow, not making much of Yahweh to them, but using the widow to make much of themselves. Manipulating widows, flattering them. We're talking about a woman whose husband has died, who's at a financial disadvantage, using their position to con her out of what little she does have. This is about as low as as it gets. And, And this is why later James will say, true religion, the good stuff, seeks to care for widows and not to devour them, not to use them. And this behavior showed that, that, that if this is how you treat people, then of course your prayers are shows. Of course they're not real prayers. They're part of the game too. They're performances. Their prayers were monologues to garner more attention, more support, more power. And so Jesus says, finally, these will receive harsher judgment. Judgment is coming for the self-aggrandizing and the self-worshiping. Listen, if you're in a position of authority or respect, particularly spiritual authority, but I, but I think this can apply to any sort of authority. Maybe you're, maybe you're just a leader amongst your friends at school or your team at work. Maybe you're a dad or a mom. or Maybe you're a husband. Whatever role that the Lord's put you in, are you using your position for your own benefit or are you using it for the betterment of those that you lead? The Lord will not tolerate those who trample on the weak for their own gain. Those who use and abuse his sheep, such little ones like these. And that leads us to our second point. We see now a good example of worship. And it's it's as if if right right on cue, uh, as Jesus is saying what he's saying here, uh, he's talking about those who devour widows. Look who walks in. Um, and don't like don't sweat the chapter breaks here. Uh, the chapter breaks are not; th- these are not inspired. The chapter breaks are were added later, so we can you can just read from one chapter into the next. It's okay. Um, so we just move. We keep moving into, into verse one of chapter twenty-one. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. This is likely similar to how we have an offering box sitting back here. Um, this would have been in the outer courts of the temple, probably a little more ornate, a little more, a little bigger. Um, but these offerings funded often; they, they would fund the ministry of the synagogue. And, and Jesus sees the rich coming, which I think is amazing because undoubtedly amongst this line of rich who are giving, I guarantee that some of them must have been wearing religious attire because who were some of the most wealthy members of their of their community? They were the religious re- leaders. And so whether there was an an announcement as to what was given by each person or maybe Jesus and his omniscience just knew. Uh, But after the rich give, we, we, we have a poor widow who steps up. And look at verse two. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. This uh, these small coins, these tiny coins, these are these are copper coins. Um, actually, the, the word that's referred referred to them here is, is a lepton. Uh, which, they, if you're maybe you've heard this word from the King James, the a mite. Uh, often the story is referred to as a widow's mite. Uh, but we that's actually like an old English word that we don't use at all. So it's it's a strange one for us to hear. Maybe we know it just because of this story. Uh, but this 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 lepton or this cop, copper coin, it was the smallest form of currency in circulation. Think, think of something like a penny, maybe with inflation like a dime, uh, but the value of, of two lepta was like just under one one-hundredth of a day's wage. Like you'd have to have 200 or so of these coins just to begin to approach a day's wage. This is a tiny amount, these two coins. But of course we learned to the widow, it was, it was no tiny amount at all. Look at verse three. He says, truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. That's a pretty shocking statement. Uh, Jesus, obviously, is no longer speaking about currency. Now he's talking value. To this woman, these coins were of tremendous worth to her. Tremendous cost for her to give them up. But the other givers, they're, they're, the wealthy, they're giving out of their surplus, we read. They, 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 they would walk by the box and they'd throw $100 in and not think of it again. They gave more money, but it cost them very little. And so he says, her offering is better. Not in dollars and cents, but in God's economy. Look at verse four. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Gospel math is different isn't it and man, we can really screw this up can't we like we 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 celebrate big giving and, and it's it's great what, what how 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 large uh gifts can be used for the kingdom but there i mean we our culture loves to see it like we, we there are entire YouTube channels devoted to people just giving away money, tons of it, and they have sponsors that help them do it because it's just so fun to watch uh, but but I think that we struggle with this. Um, I think we struggle with this because of the affluent West that we live in. Our, our kind of middle class or even many upper middle class sensibilities, we are impressed by what we can give because we're still so happy with what we can keep. We're still so pleased with what we still have, but God's economy is different. Yes, God loves a cheerful giver, the scriptures say, but the gospel compels us to sacrifice, to give sacrificially. I'm thankful, as, as one of your pastors, we, we don't know what, what each person in our church gives. Like we don't know uh, what that's between you and the Lord. But, but know this the Lord doesn't need us, He doesn't need us, but He invites us to participate. We get to play. We get to give our very lives away for him. And isn't it interesting to consider that maybe maybe one day in heaven, we will find out that there was a big giver who gave just a tiny percentage of of his millions and that, that tiny percentage, though it was a very large amount of money, isn't it interesting to consider that maybe we'll, we'll hear one day and discover in heaven that even that large amount of money that he gave was not used for much impact at all? But that maybe all of heaven celebrates and rejoices and, and great gospel gain was, 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 was brought about when just one student gave a tithe off of their power washing job. When just one teenager said, you know what? I made this money babysitting, but I'm gonna give some of it away. When one hourly employee said, I'm I'm gonna commit myself to give, uh, even though I would love to keep it all, I wanna give for God's glory. We don't understand how God might work I know there are some of you who are giving to the church or you're supporting missionaries and it hurts. Like to the degree that you're giving, it hurts. But you do it, you're faithful. It could be that the Lord would say, you're giving more than the richest giver among us. And while there are some of you here who have a lot to give, praise God for that. Praise God for that. I, I think one of, the, one of the spiritual gifts in the New Testament we see is the gift of giving. And I, I actually think that like maybe it just means, I, 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 this is not a, an exegetical argument. I just think it seems that if you have a lot of money, then you have the gift of giving. You, God's gifted you the ability to do it. He's called you to do it. And what a gift it is to be able to use your resources for God's glory. But when all is said and done, listen, I think we have to believe this that the Lord is not more honored by the rich who give than by the poor who give. We may be more impressed, but the Lord is not. I don't care if you have $10 million in the bank or $10 in the bank. Are you giving all? Is, does all of it belong to the Lord? And I don't think this just applies to money. I think likewise, the Lord's not more honored by those with a bigger platform, he doesn't care if you have two million Instagram followers or if you don't know how to turn a computer on. Like, he, he doesn't care if you're the boss of hundreds or the boss of zero. The Lord is not more honored by the most skilled teacher or the most musically gifted. Not, he's not most honored by the most athletic or the best host. And look, it's great to be excellent for the Lord. I'm not diminishing those things. But, but the call of the gospel on the heart of one saved by grace is not kingdom leverage. How much can you leverage? Rather, it's how are you, is your allegiance to the king? Is your allegiance Him? That means that being a Christian is not, it's not about giving a lot or doing a lot. No, being a Christian is, is he a lot? Is he everything to me? Because only as he is everything to you will you be willing to give all for his sake. And in this simple act by the widow, a declaration was being made. The Lord, she is saying, the Lord is better than food, than comfort, Money was not her trust. God was. Recently, heard a story of a member of our church who uh, wanted to support another member from Redeemer who was wanting to go and share the gospel uh, with people who don't know him and uh, that, that don't know the Lord. And, and she, in, in her prayers, just felt the Lord leading her to give uh, to give this 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 person hundred dollars. And she had $100 in a, in a safe at home and she said, I, I just feel like God's telling me to give this to you so that it can help, just, just pay for your, for your baggage when, as, you, as you travel. So she pulled it out and, and she, she brought it to him and gave it to him. And when, when I heard this story, it was, it was just like, this, this is the widow's mite. And I think my, my, my reaction, uh, as, as several of us heard it, I, I, there's a part of me that, that wanted to go, don't do that. Keep your money. Hold on to that. You might need that. She probably needs that $100. But that's not what Jesus does here, is it? Jesus honors the widow. He doesn't tell her it's bad that she's giving. He says it's good. She's giving of all that she has. And this is the sort of sacrifice that I believe only the gospel brings about. Only a heart changed by the all-surpassing worth of Christ will say, like Paul, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. This is what the gospel brings about and someone who, for whom Jesus is their all. So that leads us to our final point. What can we learn? What can we learn? It's, it's amazing how, how much Jesus teaches his disciples and he teaches us too by pointing to negative examples, bad examples of, of religious hypocrites. And I'm not sure what to take from that other than other than to say, it seems that maybe Jesus is, is showing us that this could be a primary danger for us as well. That, that we might lose sight of the gospel. That we might be tempted to bypass love for God and yet still maintain some of our appearance of religiosity. And so as, as, we, as we look at this story, I, I wanna offer us uh, three lessons that I think that we can see. I mean, there's, there's so many lessons we could take from it, but I, I wanna just give us three. And the first is this the least are your ministry. The least of these, the lowest, they are your ministry. There are some who believe that the arrangement of this story is actually pointing to the fact that that the widow giving what she gave was by itself a condemnation of, of the religious leaders. As though Jesus is saying, Look, this widow, she has nothing. Are you content to see a widow in your temple courts here who has nothing? And while I don't think that Jesus, again, like I said earlier, I don't think that that Jesus was saying it was bad that she was giving. I think he was was, uh, honoring it. But I do think Jesus was condemning them as she gave to say, she should have been your ministry. The temple was to be a haven for widows. The temple treasury, a bank for for when there was nowhere else to go. And yet Jesus is showing them, she gives all she has. Despite the fact that her shepherds seem to not only not care, but they have used her, profited off her. This is why we see such a radical shift that the Holy Spirit births in the church uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts. We see in Acts 2 that they, there were no divisions among them. Everyone was bringing their resources together. And what was the testimony of that early church? It was that no one among them had need because all of their needs were met. And this the same should be true of us. If Redeemer is your church family, then the least among us are your ministry. It's not an option. It's not an option for us. If if one of my children in my home was starving because we kept all of the food on the top shelf and they couldn't reach it and all of us were going and getting our food and eating and we were doing just fine, it would be to our shame if we did not help them receive the food. It would be to our shame. We are to help one another. We are to serve one another. Why? Why? Because God has called us to be a family, to be a unit, to care for each other. And this is the church who are the least among us. Certainly there are those who have financial need. We saw this around the holidays. So many of you pooling pooling your resources together uh, to help and bless families in our body with need. Showing up with your cash and just giving it to them. And if, if you are part of Redeemer and, and you, you have financial need and, and we, we missed you or we don't know about it, please let us know. We, we need, we're for each other. We need to help each other. Bring it to our attention so we can help you. But, but if you're here and, and, and you say to yourself, you know, that's, that's just not what God has called me to do though. That's wrong. Ministering to our family is everyone's game. It's for all of us. So whatever other obligations you have or ministry you have, the Lord has called us to care for each other. The second takeaway I think we see here is uh, that everyone can give all. Everyone can give all. You may be going, look, I, I do give. I, I, I try to give a lot. I, it's, it, giving is pretty easy for me to let my money go. But, but let me then ask, what is it that you hesitate to give? What, what, do you, what do you not wanna give away? Look, it's, it's not always about money. Like we, we, have, we have other resources. We have time, we have energy, we have our, our emotions, we have our, our other abilities that we can share. There are needs all around us. And, and I would dare say that most of them are not financial. Maybe it's the lonely person that you see on a Sunday morning and you know, if I engage, this is gonna cost me. Like I'm already an introvert, so conversation is just—that's daunting in and of itself. Uh, And then, what if they have a need? What if they want me to pray for them? Like, what? What if they want? What if I have to take them to coffee? And this becomes like an ongoing thing. Now I'm—this is a lot to give. Where are you bothered when you have to give more than you wanted? When someone asks you to serve in the children's ministry, are you bothered? Or have you just kind of worked it out in your head where you're like, I, I, I've known, I, I know how to get over that obstacle now. I don't have, I know how to, to not to just say no without even listening. You say, oh, that would mess up my Sunday rhythm. It, my, it, I have, you know, really important family time on Sunday mornings. I drink coffee and uh, just, or I'm, I'm too old to serve. I'm past my prime. I, I, or I, I, I have kids at home. Like I, I'm, I'm already around kids all the time. I, I need a break. Maybe it's when your neighbor needs help. Or when you pass someone in need and are you quick to say, "Ah, oh, but I got, I have my life. I got my stuff going on. I got my finances, my schedule. The interruptions at church, I believe are often the ministry. They're often the ministry. Ray Ortland said this, obedience that doesn't cost us anything may be more natural and glib than Christian. After all, self-righteousness always, I'm sorry, self-righteousness obeys and wonders impatiently what's wrong with everyone else. A lot of people give, but to give as a Christian is sacrifice. What has the Lord called of you that you might give yourself sacrificially away? Where has he called you but you've hesitated? Where if you say, wait, Lord, just until my kids get a little older, or wait, just, Lord, and, and when, once the bank is a little more, the account's a little more comfy. Lord, I'm going to work this job just a little bit longer. Then I'll change so I can be more present with my family, present with my kids. Then I'll think about doing that mission that you've called me to, Lord. Well, Lord, now I'm I'm a bigger deal now. So I I, I let other people do those those kinds of jobs. That that kind of work's not really for me anymore. This was the mentality of the scribes. Too important to serve others. Too important to sacrifice. No, they, they sought to be served. But the widow shows us everyone can give all. Everyone can give all. And then lastly... If we're to give all, we must look to the sacrificial king. This final point of application, I think almost, it almost preaches itself, I think. The contrast is so stark. We, we see the scribes and the Pharisees, they're positioning themselves as benevolent kings uh, in the community. Aren't we so wonderful? Aren't we so generous? Look at us in our fancy robes, robes and, and marvel at us. Isn't it so kind of us to dispense religious goods to you? Shouldn't we sit in the best seats? Shouldn't we have these privileges? After all, we're kind of a big deal. But now these, these little kings, they stand face to face with the king of all. Like little sheriffs of Nottingham, posers in fancy robes while the king rolls in. And the true king of the universe is speaking to them And and the true king, he he doesn't just wear a robe. The scriptures say that he's wrapped in light. He isn't just a wealthy religious leader. No, the scriptures say that all of the earth belongs to him. And yet, rather than a gaudy robe, as he came to the earth, what did he take on? He took on a thorny crown. He took on a heavy beam on his shoulders. Rather than receiving greetings in the market or even the adulation of heaven, he will receive instead the kiss of a betrayer. He'll endure shouts of crucify him from the crowds that he came to serve. Rather than being escorted to, to a seat of honor or a seat of blessing in the synagogue, he'll be led instead to the place of cursing and death. For cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And rather than devouring the poor, the Lord Jesus will himself be devoured. He will give all that he has down to the very last drop of blood, the last gasp of breath. And why? Why? He will do so So that you who are poor in spirit may have his riches forever. So that you might be eternally rich with him. He will go to the cross so that you who wear the robe of shame, you're covered in the shame of your own sin. He goes to the cross so that you may now wear a new robe. A, a, the, the, not the showy robe of the scribes, but the robe of Christ's righteousness that would cover you. And guess what? He will be cursed so that you might sit at the best seat in the banquet forever with him. You might sit with him forever in, with, with him in heaven, with him at the, the marriage supper of the lamb. Friend, what hope is there for us to truly give sacrificially? Can we do it? What hope do we have to do it? I think the only way it will happen is if we fix our eyes on the king who has sacrificed for us. John Piper said this. He said, the way to think about self-denial is to deny yourself only a lesser good for a greater good. Jesus wants us to think about sacrifice in that way in a way that rules out all self-pity. To say he's better He's better because when you see what the Lord Jesus has done for you, all that you gain with him, you'll see that life with Jesus is no sacrifice at all. It's better. You will say, take it all. Take my life and let me have Christ. I want to close with the words from a song from the early, early 2000s, a worship song that has stuck with me all these years. Um, But the lyrics say this by a guy named Jason Upton. The lyrics say this. Say, your thoughts are higher than mine. Your words are deeper than mine. Your love is stronger than mine. This is no sacrifice. Here's my life. Let's pray together. Lord we need you we need eyes to see and to believe in the beauty of our, our king the beauty of, of the king of the universe who would give all for us we didn't deserve it we could never have earned it and yet you've given us everything so Lord how now would we withhold things from you How would we hold on? Lord, break us of this. May our lives be all yours, (laughs) down to the last cent, down to the last moment on our calendar. Lord, would you take it all? And and God, I, I ask that we would just feel such joy doing so. Because we know that Jesus is better that to gain Him is better than anything we could give up. Right where you are, I, I just I, would you pray and just confess to the Lord whatever it is you may be holding on to this year, whatever it is that you you feel like, man, I've, I've hesitated to give it up, or I'm I, I'm bothered when I when I have to think about sacrificing this. Would you just ask Him to help you to open your grip on that? sacrifice all apart from your spirit at work in us. So would you move in us? Would you help us? Would you empower us? And would you help us to see Christ Jesus as Lord, as the greatest good? We pray this in his amazing name. Amen.